This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous discussion of difficult subjects. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about trauma, and I'll be talking tonight to Professor Susan Bryson about her recovery from a rape in 1990. Susan Bryson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Dartmouth College. She also teaches in the Women and Gender Studies program at Dartmouth. She's the author of the book, Aftermath, Violence and the Remaking of a Self, about her rape in 1990. She also happens to be a jazz singer. We're going to end the show tonight with a clip of her singing. Welcome to Safe Space, Susan. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. I'd like to start by asking you to, to tell us briefly the story of what happened on that day and now over 20 years ago that led to all of this. Okay, and as you say, it was over 20 years ago, but it's still sometimes hard for me to talk about it, so I'm going to just start by reading a couple of paragraphs from my book. Okay. I'll be able to get the story out more quickly that way. Okay, on July 4th, 1990, at 10.30 in the morning, I went for a walk along a peaceful-looking country road in a village outside Grenoble, France. It was a gorgeous day, and I didn't envy my husband, Tom, who had to stay inside and work on a manuscript with a French colleague of his. I sang to myself as I set out, stopping to pet a goat and pick a few wild strawberries along the way. About an hour and a half later, I was lying face down in a muddy creek bed at the bottom of the dark ravine, struggling to stay alive. I had been grabbed from behind, pulled into the bushes, beaten, and sexually assaulted. Feeling absolutely helpless and entirely at my assailant's mercy, I talked to him, calling him sir. I tried to appeal to his humanity, and when that failed, I addressed myself to his self-interest. He called me a whore and told me to shut up. Actually, I think I can describe the rest in my own voice rather than reading. Uh, after that, there were several more strangulation attempts, uh, and I was hit by a rock. And the only reason I survived was that I managed to play dead and waited until uh, my assailant had uh, gone out of earshot and was able to scramble up the ravine and uh, get help. Hmm. It's, I'm aware of the power of hearing that story, just imagining you in that situation. I'm also struck at what you said at the very beginning. You said, I, if I read it, I can tell it more quickly. And I wonder, do you feel pressure to tell it quickly? Is there a feeling of wanting to keep it, get it over with fast? <laughs> no, I'm just aware that we have precious little time, and I, I, I'm so looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> I didn't want to take up too much of it telling I the story. I see. Well, I ask because I'm aware that um, so much of your book is about what it is to tell such a story and what it is for someone to hear you telling it and all the difficulty that trauma survivors have in finding, you know, a, an empathic listener. And I'm struck at how often people feel like they have to keep their story, they have to censor it, they have to make it short or brief or not too emotional, all the ways that people try to make their story palatable to be heard. Right. And I wondered if that's, if you still have that sometimes. No, I don't have that. I, I don't think I do. Uh, I thought so much in writing this, this book about all the reasons why it's hard for people to hear survivor stories, especially rape survivor stories. And I just feel very strongly that the problem is with 
society, with us as listeners, we need to learn how to listen. That events that we call unspeakable aren't really unspeakable. It's that they're very, very painful to listen to and to take in and to respond to appropriately. Um, so I, I don't think that's what what makes it difficult for me to, to tell the story. Um, I actually, I, one of the uh, effects of my assault was that for a while, for about a year, I had terrible problems speaking. It's interesting. I, this happened in, in France, as I mentioned, and I still have difficulty speaking French, which I was fluent in 20 years ago. Uh, and so I'm concerned that if I don't just read the story, that I will start stammering and that it will take me longer uh, to, to talk about it. On the other hand, though, I, I found I did a lot of readings from the book after it was published, and I would be reading segments or some other segments from the book totally calmly, coolly, you know, with no affect. It didn't bother me at all. I'd told it a lot of times before. And people in the audience would find it difficult because here I was telling this story of extreme trauma, you know, as if. There was nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm just reading this out of a book. Mm-hmm. And do you um, feel like you had to kind of disconnect from it a little bit in order not to stammer? I think maybe that is that is part of it. Yeah. I certainly don't have the disconnect from it that I had initially, because I think I mentioned this in the book, uh, when I, I, it was several months after the assault, maybe about six months. I had been seeing a therapist, but I found a therapist who specialized in trauma and started seeing her and she asked me to describe what had happened. And I told the story, taking much longer than I did just now. And she said, well, that sounds horrible, but you sound as if you're describing something that happened to somebody else. And I was very struck by that, that at that point I could talk about it but I hadn't yet fully absorbed the emotional impact of it. I couldn't really feel it and talk about it at the same time. And that it really took quite a lot of therapy working through the trauma to be able to talk about it as something that indeed happened to me. It makes sense to me, sort of all the ways that we try to hold it at bay in order to bear it. And I, I actually don't think I struggle with that anymore. That uh, if, if anything, it's it's the opposite. But I told this was 20 years ago, and uh, my book was published nine years ago. And I have told the story so many times in so many different venues and in so many different ways that I don't I don't consciously feel I'm at all traumatized by by telling it. In fact, I'm sort of bored by telling it. <laughs> I want to, and maybe that's why I want to get it over with quickly. Okay, <laughs> I've done that. I've written about that. I've talked about that. Uh-huh. Let's get to the more interesting stuff. Yeah, that yeah. makes so much sense. I actually wondered if you could sort of lead us through that trajectory a little, because you write about the need for the survivor to tell the story at first, to be received, to have to be known. You know that the whole that your whole sense of self felt so altered by this experience that if you if someone didn't know the experience then they couldn't really know you, right. so it felt like there was this passage from of needing to tell, yes, to and then now it sounds like you know in some ways you're sick of telling, right, 
I really don't feel the need to tell. I do feel a need to bear witness, to give my testimony about what I see as a very pervasive problem of gender-based violence against women. I need to tell that story. And if it's if it affects people more deeply, hearing particular details of my own personal story, then I'll tell that. But I'm not telling it because it's my story or because I need to to work through it. You know, sort um, of your individual healing feels done at some point, and now you're wanting to bear witness more to, for the sake of others. Is that right? Yeah. Even at, at the beginning, though, I don't think I, I certainly wouldn't have told the story so publicly if it had been something that had just happened to me. Um, yeah. Telling it publicly was not the most therapeutic thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was therapeutic to tell it in therapy. Um, but it, it, even as I was experiencing the assault, at a certain point, after I realized, oh, I wasn't just hit by a car. Oh, you know, I, this isn't a nightmare. Oh, I see. This is a rape. And now this is a, a sexual murder. He's trying to kill me. That um, I didn't, I viewed it as part of a larger phenomenon. I mean, even as it was happening, and even after I was rescued and taken in an ambulance to the hospital, I was in the ambulance, thinking, if I survive this, it's going to change my life. I'm going to do something, whatever I can, to you know, help to stop this happening to other women. Do you think that commitment that you made right then, do you think that helped you have a reason to kind of get better enough to do it, to, to get through when it was hard? I think it did, yeah. It was it was that um, because I dealt with a lot of depression, in, certainly in the first year after the assault and then after that on occasion. Um, mm-hmm. And I found it more motivating to feel anger than, to, you know, to feel rage rather than depression. You know, better to to have something to rail against and go out and fight against than to feel like, you know, I just can't get out of bed in the morning and just want to hide under the covers. Yes, you can. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and so so seeing this is not something, just something that happened to me, but as a, a, a very large global problem um, enabled me to to do something with that anger. And on a personal level, I mean, it really wasn't about until about six months after the assault that I was able to feel anger towards my assailant. I mean, I felt anger, but I think it was still too scary to imagine myself in close enough proximity to my assailant to imagine feeling angry, you know, or fighting back or yelling at him or whatever. But once I could feel that, um, it actually was quite, quite healing. And at times when I would think in depression and think the world is too terrible a place, what's the point, why carry on, I would be galvanized by thinking, no way am I going to finish this guy's job for him. You know, he tried to kill me. He didn't succeed. I'm certainly not going to help him succeed in that task. I'm going to live. Yeah, so it's so wonderful to hear the way that anger kind of helped you. It, I was struck by that. You talk about the um, 
the benefit of, of group therapy and about sort of helping you access anger. And I was struck when you said it's often hard for people to feel anger at their assailant. And it makes sense. Is that your understanding of why? Because to, to be angry, you have to be able to imagine being close to them? I think so. I, I, I think that may be the case. Because I was very surprised when I joined a rape survivor support group about six months after my assault. And, and the other women weren't angry with their assailants, and they were telling them stories. I mean, they were blaming themselves, and they were angry about all sorts of things, but their anger wasn't really focused on the assailants. Uh, but I could feel angry with their assailants. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you could feel but, angry on each other's behalf. Yeah. And I think we could also feel empathy for ourselves because we were in this situation where we felt empathy with the others. I mean, most of the other women in this group were, were blaming themselves. And in an odd sort of way, I, I envied them because uh, I was assaulted in a supposedly safe place in broad daylight, you know, walking on a country road, wearing baggy jeans and a sweatshirt, you know, not fitting any kind of stereotype uh, of a rape victim, middle-aged, married woman. Uh, and it's not to say that people who do fit certain stereotypes of rape victims are in any way to blame for what happened to them. Um, but there, I think, is this initial tendency to say, oh, well, if I hadn't gone out by myself late at night, or if I hadn't been doing this, that, or the other thing, I would have been safe. Now, it's it's a very dangerous thing, this self-blame, and it's never justified. However, I felt that I could understand the pull towards that, because if you feel like there was absolutely nothing in the world that you could have done differently that would have prevented you from being raped, then it's very difficult to find the confidence to go out in the world again, because there's no guarantee that it's not going to happen again. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you even have personal control over that you could change to make yourself safer. Right. Yeah. Right. And which is, not, I want to be very clear, though, it's not to say that I think women should be doing anything. You know, I think women should be able to go anywhere they want at any time, wearing whatever they want, having whatever they want to drink. (laughs) Yes, I understand that. But what you're really saying is that we tend to think of self-blame as the problem, Mm -hmm. but it serves, it has this adaptive or helpful function, I'm hearing you say, because it it can help us against this feeling of utter helplessness. I think I think it can. I mean, I think maybe um, it's at least temporarily helpful in getting through the first stage of dealing with trauma, just trying to get some sense of safety in the world. Right? But but I think if one stays in that place of blaming oneself um, and doesn't put the blame where it belongs on the assailant and on the society that created the assailant. Uh, then that can be very dangerous, I mean, both to the survivor but also to the rest of society because the problem is not with the victims and what they did or didn't do. It's with the perpetrators who were attacking them. And right. That's what we need to address. 
Right. Uh, one of the things that you write about so powerfully in your book is um, the ways in which uh, people kind of encouraged you to forget. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm struck by in a way that sort of your political commitment helped you not not give in to that. But I wondered if you might say a little bit about the messages you got to forget, to buck up, to move on, so on. Yeah. Uh, there were so many, and, and especially in the early months, and that's what really convinced me that I needed to write something and, and to speak out very publicly about this, because also the other rape survivors I spoke with, the women in this group that I was part of, had the same experience, that other people were either denying what had happened to them or diminishing the importance or saying it's time to fuck up and move on, get over it. And that both wasn't possible for us as survivors, but also wasn't desirable. Because to do that, you know, on an individual basis would be to just continue to ignore this huge societal problem and continue to allow this to happen to other women and to men and girls and boys. I don't mean to be saying that it happens only to women, but the vast majority of victims are women and the vast majority of perpetrators are men. So, um, so I'm hearing that one of the reasons to not buck up and move on and forget is, is you know, trying to work for change. I wonder, too, and this is my bias as a therapist, as a psychiatrist, and there are also more personal psychological reasons not to buck up in terms of um, healing, you know, the capacity to bear one's own experience, the capacity to be present. Curious if you'd speak to that, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you're much more knowledgeable about this as a therapist than I am as a philosopher. Uh, but from my own experience and from talking to other survivors and reading the trauma literature, I am persuaded that one does need to confront and work through the trauma, that it just doesn't work to try to push it aside and pretend that nothing happened. Uh, there was one woman in this rape survivor support group I, I was in, very struck by the fact that it was, she had been raped 12 years before. And she hadn't sought help. She hadn't talked about it. But she, 12 years later, was as traumatized as I was at that point six months after my assault. And she asked, can anyone tell me, does it ever stop hurting? You know, and at that time, I didn't know. Uh, I can imagine it was very scary for you to think, oh, my God, I'm <laughs> going to be like this for 12 years. <laughs> but what I realized, though, was that I had, I had at that time the luxury to devote time to healing. I was on a disability leave, you know, from a secure job. My husband was employed. Uh, I had considerable luxury, and I devoted about a, really a full year to recovering. Now, not everybody can do that, but it became clear to me, though, that the people who who didn't face the trauma at all or, or followed this advice to just put it behind you, buck up, pretend nothing really happened, weren't really able to to heal in the long run, and that at some point or other, they were going to have to make some time to, to deal with it. So 
felt very lucky that I was able to take that time when I did. I see. So in some ways, what you're saying is it doesn't really work. Well, it might well, work temporarily, but it's in the long run, it will, it may not work. That's my sense, and that's what I've read um, in the literature. I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm the best, best judge of that. Well, but, this, but the reason why I, I felt it was so important to you know, not to forget the story was, was because of the reasons why other people wanted me to forget. Ah. I talk in the book about meeting with um, the Attorney General in Grenoble, France, where the trial took place two and a half years after the assault, but several months before the trial was to take place. I went to Grenoble and met with the Attorney General, and we discussed the case, and he showed me all of the evidence and photographs and documents, and, and we discussed how the case would go. And as I was leaving his office, he looked at me and said, when the trial is over, you must forget that this ever happened. And I was just flabbergasted. And I said something like, well, you know, as, as a victim of such a crime, it's really not that easy to just forget <laughs> somebody you know, raping you and trying to kill you. And he looked at me very sternly and said, but madame, you must make an effort. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I realized I absolutely had to write about this. And... uh because it wasn't something that just happened to me that I needed to just put behind me. It was something that I needed to bear witness to because it was, has happened to lots of other people. It was continuing to happen. And my experience with this rape survivor support group made me realize that I would had not only the luxury of being able to devote this time to recovery the year after the assault, but I had extraordinary privilege and credibility just because of how I was positioned. Many rape victims don't. And it was through no merit of my own that I had it. It was just sheer luck. But that gave made me feel like I had an obligation to speak out. You write, you quote in the book, um, Milan Kundera from his book, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, saying, the struggle against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Mm. So your refusal yeah. to forget in some ways is is a form of the struggle against, you know, a certain kind of power. Yeah. So I want to change the subject now, Susan, because I'm aware our, we don't have much more time. And there's, I, I want to ask you, you talk about two things in the book that have helped you so much. One, of course, was the group, which we've already discussed. But another was taking a self-defense class. And I'd love to hear more about what it was about that that was so helpful for you. It was enormously helpful. Uh, I was I found out about one that was being offered at Princeton where I was living at the time. My husband teaches there. And I read about it and what I read was that the instructor who identified herself as a survivor herself um, uh, taught this course to women and it was specifically a rape prevention course. And the woman who wrote an article about her in the course was a graduate student at Princeton, and she said, after I took this course, I found I spoke up more often in seminars. And it was, I mean, not only did this help me 
have the confidence to go out in the world and feel safe. But watching all those undergraduates take this course, and I brought this instructor to Dartmouth and started a women's self-defense course up here, and one is still continuing. Mm-hmm. It made me realize how afraid <clears throat> women are, even to just assert themselves, you know, in classroom situations. There's always this fear that if you know, you're not really entitled to take up space, be really out there in the world. Um, so being able to physically defend yourself, I think, can be enormous, even if you're not recovering from a, a rape or, or doing it just for rape prevention purposes. In my case, I, it was a huge step in my recovery when I woke up from a dream that I had had where I was being attacked by my assailant. And I used these moves that I had learned in the self-defense class. In the dream. And I, in the dream, and I fended oh. off the attack. You know, which is not to say that you know, I'm now invulnerable, or I think nobody <laughs> could right, assault right. me. It's not that. It just it enables me mentally to change that narrative in my head. You know, I wasn't going to be perpetually a victim. You know, I can tell this story in a different way, and that was very empowering. So great. You know, I I think back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation about how even now it's sometimes hard to speak in French, which you used to be fluent at. And I I remember when I was at a self-defense class, we were encouraged to shout at our assailant. I mean, really shout, like swear shouting. You know, things that like as women, it was so like, oh, it was so impolite. You know, it was like, oh, shocking. And I'm curious, when you did that, were you encouraged to shout in French? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, no in English and no in French is really that different. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but what what amazed me was uh, that we that was one of the first things that the instructor had us do, and boy, just screamed. I mean, it was yes. <laughs> so yes. loud. I had no trouble doing that, and I was just amazed that that the other women in the class were saying, "No, go away. <laughs> you know, yes. This person is attacking you." Right. <laughs> Defend yourself. <laughs> yes. And, but it made me realize, in fact, the instructor said 90% of what she did was re-socialization. She was, uh, I don't know what degree I felt in jujitsu, but what she mainly did with these undergraduate women was re-socialize themselves. So but they, you know, you can defend yourself. You can shout. You can take up space. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. We we are going to have to stop, and I wanted to, because um, I want to leave some room to hear some of your singing. Will Thank you just you. say a moment about what about singing and how it's also been part of your your journey or your healing, Susan? Because it feels important. It it is important, and I'm realizing now just how important it is and, and was. Uh, but even at the time, for the first year or so, when I had trouble speaking, I was stuttering even in English. I could sing fluently, and it was. So healing, murder attempt. But it's 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 funny that I mean, at the earliest possible convenient time in the conversation or inconvenient time, I'll say, "Well, you know, I'm a singer. Uh-huh. <laughs> I perform next month. I've got a gig next Friday." <laughs> yeah. So, so let's end with that. So Susan Bryson is singing on Sunday, April 24th at 4 p.m. at the Faulkner Auditorium in the Hopkins Center at Dartmouth College. And if you want to be in touch with Susan to ask her further questions or to uh, maybe find out about how to get tickets, why don't you give me your email address, Susan? Sure. The concert is free and you don't need to have tickets. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> My email address is Susan.Bryson 
at dartmouth.edu. Great. And Bryson is B-R-I-S-O-N. Correct. And Susan's book is Aftermath, Violence and the Remaking of a Self. Thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space, Susan. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. This is Dr. Anne. This is to be hearing Susan Bryson singing it. Ah, blacksmith courted me nine months or better. He fairly won my heart, wrote me a letter. With his hammer in his hand, he looked so clever. And if I were with my love, I would live forever. Oh, where has my love gone with his cheeks like roses and his big black billy coat on decked with primroses? I fear the scorching sun will shine and burn his beauty. And if I were with my love, I would do love's duty. Strange news has come to town, strange news is carried. Strange news goes up and down that my love is married. I wish them both much joy, though they can't hear me. And may God reward him well for the slight.